I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. This episode of Parallax Views was brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews, and those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So, producers credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project. M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be taking a critical look at the political life and thought of Michael Harrington, one of the founders of the Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA has experienced a bit of a resurgence in recent years thanks to figures like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns. In addition to helping found the DSA, Michael Harrington was deeply involved with the activism of the New Left in the mid-20th century, and his book, The Other America, Poverty in the United States, was hugely influential. So, with all that in mind, our guest is Doug Green, who recently authored the book A Failure of Vision, Michael Harrington and the Limits of Democratic Socialism. In said book, Green offers a left-wing critique of Harrington's political thought. And now, let's get right to the conversation with Doug Green, author of a failure of vision, Michael Harrington, and the limits of democratic socialism. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've wanted to have on for some time now, recommended to me by friend of the show, C. Derek Varn, Doug Green, author of A Failure of Vision, 
Michael Harrington and the limits of democratic socialism. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on today. So we're going to need to uh, talk about who Michael Harrington is, just for some of my listeners that may be unfamiliar. Uh, but that is a pretty, um, the, the title is pretty just in your face, a failure of vision. Uh, so this is going to be a very critical look at Michael Harrington. Uh, let's talk about who Harrington was and why you chose that title. So Michael Harrington um, was probably the most important democratic socialist intellectual in the latter half of the 20th century, at least here in the United States. He was the author of about a dozen books. The most famous one is a book called The Other America, which was very influential behind the Great, uh, great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. And in addition to being an author and a public intellectual, he was also a political activist. At one point, he was the leader of the Socialist Party of America, and he founded a group called the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee and later the Democratic Socialists of America, also known as DSA. And DSA currently is the uh, largest uh, nominal socialist organization in the United States in the last like 70 or 80 years. And you know, counts among its members, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, et cetera. And so I figure it was actually worth looking at the founder of this organization, what his ideas were, what the lasting legacy of them was. And in terms of the title, well, I, I'm, I consider myself a revolutionary communist. So I, I'm like, consider myself also diametrically opposed to pretty much everything Harrington puts forward. But he, Harrington was no slouch, he was no fool. So it was kind of worth actually going in depth, looking at him and just his life, his ideas, and just really dissecting why they're wrong. Because I think if anyone follows Harrington's ideas in really any way, I don't think you'll ever advance one iota towards socialism. And that's something I'd kind of set out to uh, to prove. So let's get into uh, something you're alluding to there, which is, I, I think Harrington believes that we get to sort of a socialist point through constant reforms. Um, you know, it's not like you you, you just have one big revolution. Um, can you clarify that a bit? Like, how, sure. how would his views differ from a revolutionary communist? Well, what he argues, his, his strategy hinges on something called realignment. Right, the realignment. And and he calls that, he's, he's very explicit, that's like the only place a political beginning can happen. And realignment, basically, it tries to answer the question about why the United States does not have like a socialist party like in Western Europe or a labor party. And he says, well, we kind of do. We have like the trade unions and they kind of formed a political party, but it's a secret one. It's just in the Democratic Party. So he, his goal is to, you know, to, work with these uh, trade union officialdom, along with like the civil rights movement, something he calls the new class, which are like these technicians, professionals, and to form a new majority that will transform the Democratic Party, because he thinks all these groups find themselves in the Democratic Party, and they will kick out the capitalists and the racists. They'll make the Democratic Party basically the equivalent of like the British Labor Party, enact a bunch of reforms, do some more reforms. And after that, you get a welfare state. Then sometime after that, you get to socialism. So that, he does sort of, he does believe in socialism and the yeah. socialist project, but 
he has a very different way of getting there than some other um, people on the left. Yeah, uh, that I don't question his sincerity. I question the fact that his methods are just not going to get there. So let's talk about uh, the young Michael Harrington. Like, what what is his background? I know he has um, he he got a Jesuit as an education, right? Yeah, so he he was born in St. Louis in 1928, fairly well-off family, very Irish, Catholic, and Democrat. And he he got you like he was a dedicated Catholic for most of his early life. And he did receive a Jesuit education. And he just missed serving in World War II when he graduated high school. But he ended up um, studying in Holy Cross, um, which is not too far from where I live, actually. And he actually described the political atmosphere there as like a very like almost like Francisco Franco style politics. So he and he he was uh, his father wanted him to pursue like a career in law. And Harrington was very interested in literature and poetry. And he kind of has some back and forth with his parents over this. And he studies at Holy Cross, at Yale, the University of Chicago. And during this time, he actually, at one point, he, he reads like some, you know, existentialist pe- uh, philosophers, uh, people like Camus, he reads Kierkegaard, and he kind of like loses his faith at one point. And he's still, he's, but he's, uh, as he, he's still like very confused about what he wants to do in life. And at one point he's back home and this is like 1949 or something. And he see he's working as like a social worker and he sees like, he goes to this house and sees all this poverty and he's like aghast at it and he wants to do something about it. And he doesn't do anything right away, but he has like an interesting turn. He lives in New York and, you know, he's kind of working odd jobs and everything, but he, he basically recommits to Catholicism and he joins the Catholic worker movement, which is led by Dorothea Day, who was kind of this left-wing Catholic pacifist she has a, a very fascinating history of her own going back I, to, uh, trust to me i know i come from a, a catholic background okay, so okay. I, i'm sort i sort of come from like a, a sort of catholic sort of left background yeah yeah so he works you know he basically takes this vow of poverty and he's ministering to the poor and everything but he he actually does not like living in poverty himself and i'm not going to criticize him for that but um he he even uh during this period, he's actually drafted for the Korean War, and he actually refuses to go because he still he considers himself a pacifist. And he somehow, through sheer luck or maybe bureaucratic uh, misfiling, he, he's given a dishonorable discharge, and he doesn't end up in jail because this is obviously like the height of McCarthyism. Um, but he kind of finds the Catholic worker movement too confining. He doesn't really think their methods are going to work. And at one point he encounters members of the Socialist Party and he reads people like Marx, Bertolt Brecht, Victor Serge, and he kind of loses his faith again, this time for good. And he ends up joining the Socialist Party about 1953 or so. I know this is a very small part of the book, but I love this uh, line that you have in there about his teenage years. You say at first in a fit of teenage rebellion, he outraged his family by becoming something worse than an atheist, a Republican. So it sounds like he went through a lot of, um, you know, intellectual development, so to speak. And it also sounds like he was um, at times sort of drawn to the the sort of bohemian intellectual aesthetic. Is that? Yes, he, he really liked 
Bohemia, both in Chicago and New York. He just loved the vibrancy of ideas and discussions, you know, because this was uh, when he was going there, it wasn't, it hadn't all been quite clamped down through like 50s conformism. So he's dealing with avant-garde artists, political radicals from the, the Communist Party, the Socialists, the Trotskyists, et cetera. Though an interesting thing to note, uh, he really hated the counterculture. He considered them you know, just like almost plebeian, you know, this, they didn't, they weren't concerned with like ideas like he was. Yeah, it, it sounds like he thought they were shallow in some ways. Pretty much, yeah. So then you sort of point towards his biggest influence being this figure of um, Max Schachtman. So who, who was Max Schachtman? Schachtman is probably a more interesting figure than Harrington himself, actually, but um, he, he was an early member of the Communist Party. He was a founder of the American Trotskyist movement. And to give you an idea of his influence, he presided over the founding convention of the Fourth International, which was Trotsky's international organization. And Trotsky considered him a close friend. But there was a falling out between Schachtman and Trotsky uh, over the Soviet um, invasion of Poland and the war with Finland, where to simplify it a bit, Trotsky believed that the the Soviet Union was still a worker state, albeit degenerated. Schachtman thought it was this new form of a bureaucratic collectivist evil empire, it was this new class, and it was expanding you know, to conquer the world, basically. And um, as the 1940s went onward, because Schachtman was eventually left the Trotskyist movement, he considered the Soviet Union to be objectively worse than um, the United States or other forms of imperialism. And so basically he was an anti-communist and he considered the labor bureaucracies like liberal or wings to be allies against what he considered the biggest domestic threat, which was Stalinism. So he really hated the domestic CP. And in addition to that, um, he was kind of pioneering the ideas of realignment. Harrington picks up on that and really refines it into a strategy, but like the seeds of it you can find in Shackman. And during the Korean War, Shackman was pretty much looking for ways to offer backhanded support to the United States in what he considered a war against, you know, communist imperialism and totalitarianism. And you can kind of even see echoes of that in like how Harrington himself basically views, um, deals with the Vietnam War. So I guess I would say from Shack Shackman, Harrington picks up this idea of realignment of uh, anti-communism and also just um, aligning with the West against, you know, the Soviet Union, China, et cetera, which, you know, he considers something defensible. And even though Harrington eventually falls out with Shackman, he does dedicate one of his uh, books to Shackman. And he never, he, even in like when he breaks to them is like it's more over tactical issues as opposed to anything fundamental or principled. Harrington just stays with that. He, he actually thinks he's ultimately the more true Shackmanite than Shackman himself. Can we talk a little bit more about that aspect of Harrington, the sort of Harrington, the anti-communist, as you put it, and, and maybe how that affects his thinking on things like imperialism um, or, or imperialism from the West. Uh, and, and Vietnam, the Vietnam War, et cetera. I mean, he's pretty much an anti-communist from the 50s onward. 
And it really affects how he doesn't like anything that he considers soft on communism. So when SDS is formed, he's actually helps, you know, a lot of his ideas can be found in the Port Huron Statement of 1962. One thing he does not like about SDS is they- And that's the Students for a Democratic yes, I'm Society. I'm sorry, Students yeah. for a Democratic Society, one of the more important movements of the 60s is they're not a social, they're not even like a really a socialist organization or even revolutionary, but they, and they reject the Soviet Union, but they also reject the United States. They actually put the onus for the, the, the Cold War more on the United States than the Soviet Union. And Harrington is aghast at this. He thinks it's soft on communism. And he basically puts them on trial, like the founders, people like Tom Hayden on trial, and there's almost a falling out between them. Uh, it's kind of patched up until the Vietnam War. And the Vietnam War is kind of interesting because Harrington, unlike a lot of Americans, was actually aware of like the struggle in Indochina going back to the 50s. It, you know, when he was slightly more left wing, he actually was kind of happy that the, the Viet Minh defeated the French in 1954. But by the 60s, he is he's very much enthusiastic about the Great Society programs and working within the Democratic Party. And partly he's to be work in the democratic party you actually have to accept things like you know the maintain the maintenance of the american empire anti-communism reformism and he's willing to make all those compromises because he generally believes in all those things so when the united states is bombing vietnam harrington is not like a super bloodthirsty guy like nuke them but, and he does want to end the war, but he wants to end the war in such a way where it's like, you don't embarrass your liberal allies. So he doesn't want to embarrass Lyndon Johnson. You know, he doesn't want to condemn the Democratic Party. He thinks it's just bad policy decisions that are leading to this as opposed to something kind of inherent within the system. And he doesn't want, you know, in anti-war marches and et cetera, he doesn't want, certainly you don't want to have communists there. You don't want to have people who are calling for like uh, the victory of, of the, the National Liberation Front, whereas SDS and others in the anti-war movement are basically, they're, incre they're increasingly, they'll have communists at marches and they'll have like NLF flags and they'll chant Ho Ho Chi Minh, you know, the NLF is going to win. So that leads to a falling out with um, him and SDS. In terms of wider imperialism, like it's kind of interesting in the sense, like he recognizes that there's an unjust international social order although he doesn't you know, subscribe to Lenin's theory of imperialism. He doesn't believe that imperialism is necessary within capitalism. He thinks it's just bad actors, that if we can just get liberals in power, that they won't pursue imperialist policies. And which is kind of funny because, you know, uh, when he thinks like third world countries shouldn't, there's no way out for them through revolution, according to him, because he thinks that just leads to totalitarianism. But he, he also kind of rejects reform because he's like, the structure is so set that you can't really do anything. So he basically thinks that, you know, you need in the first world countries like the US, you should elect liberals who will make a more just international order. And he wants some kind of global new deal and to pressure people. and he looks to some very strange figures for inspiration. Like he, he's really enthused when Robert McNamara, who's one of the architects of the Vietnam War, is head of the IMF, because he's like, well, this guy cares for the poor. I'm like, 
yeah, maybe bombing them, but you know, not not much beyond that. So he's kind of left in a bind. Basically, third world people should just kind of wait with folded arms and you know, not do anything revolutionary and just kind of hope that liberals in the West will eventually take care of them. Even though like the liberal Johnson was bombing Vietnam had overthrown the government of the Dominican Republic, etc. It's like his anti-communism. Well, it sounds like he just believes that um, in some ways you could almost reduce it to, oh, well, the enlightened liberals just need to get to power. <laughs> yeah, that, that would simplify what I said and be true. Yes. <laughs> so I... With regards to this realignment um, that he advocates for, this strategy of realignment, maybe we could go deeper into what that entailed, what the goals of it are. And also, it sounds like in some ways it doesn't actually uh, push the Democratic Party more left. It seems to actually push people like Harrington more right. Yeah, that's a good characterization of it. So realignment... Again, this is like his whole hinge for his transformation. Basically accepting the parameters of political action set by the Democrats and liberals. He thinks you need to, he considers liberals to be allies and he wants to work with them. And he considers- So he believes in a popular front. He does believe in a popular front. He actually, at one point, he says something along the lines like, I want the popular front without the Stalinism, which is you know kind of funny. So- it's meant, he thinks it's playing like careful politics within the Democratic Party, within the confines of reformism, anti-communism, all these kind of compromises. But he all does believe that you need like an organ outside of it. So, you know, the inside-outside strategy. Because when he's saying this, he's the leader of the Socialist Party. But in practice, you know, it... it it's not this grand game of uh, 33rd dimensional chess of strategy. It's really, it comes down to voting for the Democrats every two to four years. And, uh, you know, in 1964, he's basically, when he's justifying supporting Johnson, it comes down to, there's these horrible right-wing Republicans. They're going to start World War III. They're racist, et cetera. You can't, and he says to the left, you can't be purist, you can't be, you know, revolutionary. You got to understand that, you know, if we elect Johnson, we can have space created for the left. We can push our agenda and, you know, slowly, incrementally move things forward. And, you know, this, you know, SDS at that time actually had the slogan like half the way with LBJ. And, you know, they eventually, um, they move way past that, none of the way with LBJ, but, but it does move him further to the, the right, because just a few years before, he'd actually, um, he'd argued with Martin Luther King Jr. of all people saying you shouldn't support L uh, John F. Kennedy in the elections, because he was willing to uh, support the Democrats on various local things, but he still wasn't willing to commit nationally. But by 64 and the rest of his life he is and this is you know it does push him further to the right because you know during the vietnam war he's a, a constant voice of moderation of drawing various elements of the new left back to the democratic party and in all the organizations he he leads you know this is the guiding ethos and in like 1970, the 70s, he pushes something called the Democratic Agenda, which is this 
this platform for the Democratic Party, you know, the, a reinvigorated New Deal and great society, which is actually adopted by the party. And he's very excited when Jimmy Carter's elected. But it should be noted when he's pushing for this, he's not willing to push for things like, uh, you know, women's rights or gay rights. He considers that fringe issues and he's not willing to get behind it. And he's very excited when uh, Carter's elected that year. He thinks basically, well, you're going to, you know, we're going to have basically complete the New Deal. And instead, Carter, you know, slashes social programs, attacks unions. He starts basically the groundwork for Reaganism. And Harrington just kind of can only shrug his arms and ineffectually protest. And it's kind of interesting, though, um, there are various movements for his during Harrington's life that almost appear like realignment coalitions. There's the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which is, you know, done by civil rights activists in 1964 to, to create basically an unsegregated party in Mississippi. And they're like, members of that organizers are murdered by the Klan, the cops, et cetera. And, it, and the movement is supported by like left, uh, you know, more like left liberal labor unions. But when they get to the Democratic convention that year, Harrington's allies, not Harrington himself, he's not there. They basically are forced to accept a compromise deal of two seats as opposed to like an unsegregated party. And this is a gas. But Harrington believes you have to accept that. You need to be realistic. And he, he, in 1968, I think he supports something like four different candidates um, just because he can't see outside the Democratic Party. And in the 80s, there is probably the best chance for realignment in his life, which is the Rainbow Coalition, but led by Jesse Jackson. And this is supported by like um, progressive trade union people, uh, civil rights figures, kind of all these kind of progressive people. And, and domestically, Jackson just has like this kind of New Deal style politics. And internationally, he's opposed to things like, you know, intervention in Central America. And he wants to recognize Palestine. But Harrington refuses to support Jackson in 1984 because, well, he's following the lead of the labor bureaucrats who are already committed to Walter Mondale. Although it, when Jackson runs four years later, he actually moderate, uh, he moderates his rhetoric, he tones down on a lot of things, and Harrington does support him, but he's more enthused about the possibilities for the left under Michael Dukakis, and probably the only person in the world who was. Why was he more enthused about Dukakis? Because, you know, Dukakis was more, you know, like a more realistic politician, part of this machine apparatus. And he was supported by the labor bureaucrats. And Harrington, he counts like a lot of these machine Democrats as, you know, friends and people within the party officialdom. And ultimately, it just comes down to the fact that even on Harrington's own terms, he's not willing to pursue realignment because he's not it to do so would actually entail a fight within the Democratic Party that he doesn't want to do. And that you know, he's not, he rules out any form of, you know, anything outside those boundaries, which it does move him further to the right, even within that strategy as he, you know, as his life goes on. Now, I suppose the answer that Harringtonites would give um, is that, well, no, Harrington was just uh, the, the sort of pragmatic radical, right? The a uh, man who believed in the, I, I think he always advocated for the left wing of the possible. How do you respond to those sort of defenses of um, Harrington? 
I mean, yeah, he did describe his strategy as the left wing of realism, and he certainly was pragmatic, but he wasn't radical. I mean, the, first of all, if you just look at how he acted, how it played out during his life, I'm not sure how you can honestly say that this was this actually advanced socialism at all. And when you water down socialism to just you know, be like fig leaves for the Democratic Party, I'm not really sure what you're advancing beyond that. I mean, I think the group, a lot of the groups he opposed did far more to advance, you know, socialist ideas than he did. You know, if you have a socialism that's kind of okay with the bombing of Vietnam, I'm really not sure like what's socialist about it. So in regards to the DSA, he's one of the founding members. Could you go over the, the founding of the Democratic Socialists of America for us? Sure. I want to just go back a bit. So he ends up splitting with Shackman in the Socialist Party because Shackman ends up being like gung-ho for the war and supports Richard Nixon, actually. And Harrington by 1968 is, a, is calling for a withdrawal from the war. And this is also... Um, should be noted when he does that, it's because he's also a Republican in the White House. So it's a little easier for him. So in 1972, well, uh, Shackman is backing Nixon, Harrington is backing McGovern, and this leads to him leaving the Socialist Party. And he forms something called the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. And he's basically the leader. And it includes him, it includes prominent New York intellectuals like Irving Howe, trade union officials, you know, from the UAW. And all like these kind of old school social democrats. And they're, they kind of grow throughout the 70s to a few thousand members. And they were involved in that, what I described earlier, the democratic agenda platform. But by the early 80s, they're growing closer to a group called the New American Movement, which came out of SDS and the New Left. And they were kind of like these, they were very influenced by third world Marxism, Leninism, Gramsci, but they weren't revolutionary communists as time went on. They became interested in electoral politics, working with the Democratic Party. And they kind of saw kindred spirits with it between uh, them and Harrington's uh, uh, group, DASOC. So they ended up fusing in 1982. There was a little point of contention between them because uh, uh, the New American Movement was very pro-Palestine, whereas Harrington was a Zionist. They ended up compromising and supporting a two-state solution. And, you know, they, and so in 1982, they formed a, a united organization called the Democratic Socialists of America with roughly, I think, 5,000 members. And Harrington was the, the leader. Of, of the new organization. And he ended up staying the leader until he died in 1989. And I should note furthermore that I think aside from maybe the, the Communist Party USA, they were in the 80s, at least the largest uh, group on the US left. It's interesting because I think there's a big gap between the DSA under Harrington and then the, the DSA sort of resurgence with you know Bernie Sanders, could you speak a little bit to that? What, what do you think led to the DSA maybe being ineffective or or not as not having as many members over the years um, until the Bernie Revolution or whatever people want to call it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, when like right after Harrington dies, the Berlin Wall comes down and then the Soviet Union falls, 
And this affects a lot of groups on the left, not just, you know, like people who are invested in the Soviet Union, but anyone who's invested in any form of socialism. So they take a hit as well. And they end up being very like ensconced in academia, trade union officialdom. They do have elected members though um, in Congress, even during this period. And at one point, the mayor of New York, David Dinkins, is actually a member of DSA. I'm not sure what he did to advance socialism, but he was a member. But they're kind of adrift for a while, and they even abandon the realignment strategy and pursue more like an, ins an inside-outside strategy in the 90s. Um, there are a few things that helped to resurge them. I think partly is like the changes on like the political landscape after like the 2008 recession, which, you know, there was all these polls about like, like people who were interested in socialism and identified with it. And they certainly like DSA benefits from their involvement in the Bernie Sanders campaign. They're very clear, like, you know, we like him, we support him and they campaign for him. And I think they went up a few thousand members from that. I'm not, I don't remember the exact figures, but I still think it was like under, they were un, still under 10,000 after the campaign ended. What really does kind of get them to uh, take off though is actually the election of Donald Trump. They go up like, you know, they were like under 10,000. And I think today on paper, at least, they're like around 100,000 members. So it was really like the Trump election that uh, really kind of got them to take off. In addition, they do have, um, at least some of their members are very savvy when it comes to, to media. So you have like Jacobin Magazine, which, uh, you know, was founded in what, 2010 or 11. And the founder, Bashkar Sankara, who was the DSA member, he had joined when he was like 18. He had read um, Michael Harrington as a teenager, and he does count if you actually listen to Sankara in a very recent interview he did with like, uh, was it Ezra Klein from the New York Times? He actually says at the end, everyone should read Michael Harrington. Well, you should read my book of Michael Harrington, but, um, but he, you know, so Jacobin is very, it's, it's got a very flashy aesthetic. Um, and it puts forward this kind of like neo Harringtonite type politics in a lot of its, um, articles and it certainly has built itself a presence i'm not sure how many subscribers they have but whether online or you know in print it's it's out there and you see members of jacobin on like you know talk shows a lot so and, and of course we have you know I, I think we also have members of congress now that are you yeah. know dsa affiliated so the the most famous one being uh alexandria casia cortez and i think rashida talib as well I believe so. Um, you know, that obviously like that they, they have the squad, the so-called squad is like majority DSA. I don't know the exact figures, but they have something like a hundred members who are elected to some political off, whether it's Congress or, you know, state legislatures or what have you. And so, yeah, the, that actually brings them a lot of profile, a very high profile. And AOC particularly is a very charismatic figure. She's very media savvy. And I believe when she was, after she was elected, she brought in them in several thousand members, you know, people like when she won her primary in 2018 who signed up for DSA. But that is building off like their earlier, you know, jumps from two th like 2016 onward. Although I'm, you know, you know, AOC is like an internationally known figure. So Another thing also that DSA has um, is just the name recognition. 
is if people look up democratic socialism, you're probably going to find DSA, like your first or second Google search. Like if you're looking at, you know, communist party, you would find like the CPUSA. So it's like the first thing, even if, you know, so they're, they're kind of like easy to find in that sense. So what do you think the relevance of looking at Michael Harrington is today when we're talking about something like the DSA in the 21st century? I think there's a few things. First of all, it's, it's always a good thing to know where organizations come from, who founded them, what do they believe? So in that sense, it's kind of, you know, DS, if DSA is this, you know, again, it's the largest group on the U.S. left right now. So it is actually worthwhile to go back, look at what their founder believed. In addition to that, I'm, I, I kind of argue in the book that there's a lot of Harrington, a holdover in DSA of Harrington's politics. There are certain things he, he definitely wouldn't like about DSA today that, you know, they rejected like um, the, being part of the Socialist International. There are study groups in DSA where they like read Trotsky, et cetera. But in a lot of ways, DSA is still carrying over a lot of Harrington's politics, even though I recognize like most members don't know who Harrington is and they haven't read him. And what do I mean by like this? I call it like the unspoken common sense of DSA. So they are committed to working within the Democratic Party is actually the biggest one. They can pass all the resolutions they want against boycott, divestment, sanctions, but all the all these candidates they're voting for into office, they're, they're voting for like funding for Israel. You know, AOC has done it. Jamal Bowman has done it. They endorsed Bernie Sanders twice and he's voted for not just Israel, but American wars. So, so in that sense, there's really no break. And even though there, I, I know there are different caucuses in DSA, but there's no revolutionary program in the organization itself. It's still kind of this reformist electoral road to socialism. And so you kind of see that holdover and it is important, like if, you know, if people in DSA are outside of it, they want to see the roots of this. I think it is important to go back to Harrington and see the various continuities and discontinuities. Because ultimately, I, I think these are not great politics. And if, you know, I, I think we should, you know, socialists should advance like a more revolutionary Marxist politics. And Harrington's ideas are kind of an impediment to that. I want to get more into the, the nature of, of where you think Harrington goes wrong. But before we do that, um, Harrington's most well-known book is probably The Other America, uh, Poverty in the United States. Um, what do you make of, of that book and what he has to say in it? I mean, it's basically a study of, of poverty in the U.S. And I think it came out in 1962. Yeah. Uh, Harrington actually kind of joked a few times like, when he was introduced as the author of The Other America, he's like, you know, I wrote other books too. Um, so it, it's a study of poverty in the United States. And it, was, it wasn't something he originally wanted to write, but he's kind of pressured into it. And you can read it in like an afternoon. It's like less than 200 pages. It's written very impassioned. It's, a, it's almost like a journalistic kind of work. And it's probably one of the few works of his, like I do recommend to people. It should be noted though, it's not a socialist or a Marxist work. He actually is explicit, like I'm not gonna do that in this work. He basically is arguing against people in the fifties who said, this is the end of ideology. This is the end of like poverty. Like the United States has overcome it. And he's saying, no, there's 
tens of millions of people in the United States who have who are still living in poverty. Martin Luther King joked to Harrington when he read, it's like, you know, Michael, we didn't realize we were poor till we read your book and everything. Um, so he basically, in the book, he's describing, you know, the poverty, the culture of poverty, and he's arguing basically that we need a new government that will carry on the new deal that will, you know, will tr truly create social programs to combat poverty. So he really wants to reinvigorate like this kind of like fighting liberalism, which does go yeah, He, he basically long. views the new deal as th th that new deal coalition is being, I guess, upended in, in the like the 50s. Yeah. And he wants to revive it. That's like one of the starting places for his politics. And the, the other America didn't sell well at first, but um, we got a favorable review from Dwight McDonald, which in a, like the New York Times or the New York Review of Books, I forget which. And that review actually fell into the hands of John F. Kennedy, who was kind of developing ideas for the Great Society at that point. And after Kennedy died, Johnson, you know, carried on with the Great Society and um, actually invited Harrington to the White House as an advisor for a few weeks. We're like, they're talking about like how much they want to, you know, do things, like how much money they want to throw at like poverty. And Harrington was actually underwhelmed by the Great Society compared to what he envisioned in the other America. He thought it should go much further. He wanted something more like, you know, the Swedish welfare state where they have, you know, all those expense, extensive uh, welfare systems they have in like Scandinavia, or Western Europe. Although he defended, you know, the Great Society against, you know, conservatives and everything. He just thought it didn't go far. Well, he even debated conservatives like Buckley and, yes. and Milton Friedman. Yeah. Yeah. It actually, the first episode of Firing Line is actually Buckley versus uh, Harrington. And they were actually... They'd known each other for since the 50s, actually. But in terms of the other America as a whole, it's it is probably his best book. And as just a look at poverty in the US, yeah, I, I think I think it's worth reading. It gives you a really good idea of the man, what he considered his, you know, what he cared about, what he considered his priorities. I think if you're looking for a socialist or a Marxist analysis of poverty in that era, no, it's not that you should get take it for what it is. So it, it's interesting too. I want to get more into um, his relationship to uh, the great society sort of vision of, of Lyndon Johnson and Johnson's war on poverty. So in doing that, what I really want to examine is uh, what Harrington thought of welfare states, because as you point out in the book, he doesn't see welfare states as the be all end all but he sort of sees it as a means to an end, so to speak. That's a good way to put it. Now, um, when I first started researching Harrington, I really thought he would be someone who would say like, oh, Sweden is socialist. I was disabused of that within five minutes of reading him. So he, he considers himself a democratic socialist as opposed to a social democrat, where he really likes Think, you know, government programs to fight poverty and provide for people. But he doesn't, he considers them like a halfway house, that they've got one foot in capitalism and one foot in socialism. They've decommodified certain things, but they haven't gone far enough. The market still rules. And he thinks compared to, you know, he thinks like, he says like Scandinavia is the best in the world in terms of welfare states, but the United States, both under the New Deal and the Great Society was trailing far behind. 
So he really, he thinks as a first step though, like as among his first steps for socialists is to fight for a reinvigorated welfare state that completes the new deal that looks like Scandinavia. And beyond that, you know, to start transforming society in a socialist direction. I think he's very fuzzy and hazy on what that transition looks like. So, so at least in theory, he's willing to get past the welfare state, unlike say social, social Democrats who think like, that's it, this is our stop where we get off. Harrington, at least in theory, does kind of envision something beyond the welfare state. Although, like I said, I don't think he actually has any real idea how to get there. So I, I have a lot of listeners that come from all different sides of the um, political spectrum. And I mean, when I say political spectrum, I also mean the spectrums within the spectrums. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I think people don't realize it, but I think even within like the left, the proper left, like the socialist left, I think there's a right wing to the left and a left wing to the left. And I think in some ways you would argue that Harrington sort of um, almost is like the, the right wing of the left wing. Yeah, I think he is. I mean, this is, uh, he counts, you know, he supports imperialism. He's an anti-communist. He kind of, his vision of Marxism is gutted of anything revolutionary or transformative. And he what is his on, vision of Marxism? Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, he calls it something called democratic Marxism, and he kind of refines it from the 60s onward. You know, he writes two books on socialism. He writes other books. But basically, he doesn't like materialism. He doesn't like anything like Welschenstang, like, um, you know, dialectics and whatnot. He considers that proto-totalitarian. And he kind of wants this idea, he, he wants his his idea to be like adaptive for the labor bureaucracy and like, you know, the social democratic movements he's a part of. And I, I mentioned earlier, like his idea of imperialism is not a stage of capitalism like Lenin or Bukharin argues, but it's, it's a policy. It's just bad actors who are doing it. And he's opposed to national liberation. And he's more aligned with like the various social democratic uh, politicians and figures in Western Europe and elsewhere. So he really likes um, Willy Brandt in West Germany, like Swedish Social Democrats, you know, the Israeli Labor Party. He, you know, and he does like some Social Democrats in the third world, like Alan Garcia, you know, in Peru, and there's a few others, but he, he wants really nothing to do with like, you know, revolutionary nationalists, you know, you know, you know the Stalinists or Trotskyists really. Like he's very ensconced in this um, Western social social democracy, et cetera. And that's kind of like, and the, the thing that's interesting about Harrington compared to a lot of the other figures I mentioned, is like, he's actually trying to, a lot of them, you know, in Sweden or Israel, they don't actually develop, have their own ideology of Marxism in like a system that he's actually trying to do. So he's kind of unique in that. They're just more like politicians without like a well, you know, even a well-developed opportunist theory. He's actually trying to develop a theory. So he's kind of interesting in that respect. So, like I said, I have listeners, I think that come from, I, I mean, I have liberal listeners, I have DSA listeners. I think I have, I, I would say, um, people that are even farther to the left, so Stalinist, um, you know, and I'm curious, if you were to just make a critique of, 
Harrington's sort of project. How would you explain that critique to people that aren't necessarily coming from like a communist background? Like, what do you, what do you think the biggest critique you could make of of Harrington would be for someone that's new to this subject? I think the biggest critique I'd make is he doesn't understand. Uh, you know, how the state functions, how the Democratic Party functions. He thinks it's like this, the state is kind of like this equal playing field with capitalists, workers, et cetera, when it's not, you know, there is like a clear ruling class and there are others who are not part of the ruling class. And within the Democratic Party, it's not a party of the people where there's capitalists, workers, et cetera, who are kind of like, you know, all equally at the table. It's owned by the capitalists. And I'd argue that um, I'm trying to take, you know, offer a left-wing critique of Harrington in the sense, like, if, we, if we're talking about socialism and communism, it does mean to actually have a vision of it. And his vision is one that adapts to all, like, the kind of ideological sibilists of American life, of like anti-communism, staying within you know, the proper boundaries of the political system. But if we're talking about a new society, we need to have a different vision, one that, does, that rejects kind of these unprincipled compromises that he tried to develop into an art form. And we should ask ourselves, you know, not be bound by what you know, liberal elites, et cetera, are saying like should be our political vision, which Harrington you know, parrots. It sounds like you're saying that in trying to appeal so broadly to almost everyone, he almost ends up appealing to no one in like a weird way. Kind of, like he alienates like everyone on the new left pretty much except for very moderate figures. Whether we're talking the Black Panthers, the new communist movement, the various Trotskyist groups or women's groups, they all really don't like him. In fact, one of, there's actually, um, he was always, when DASOC was founded, there were like no young people in it really because they, they all from the 60s remembered him. And on the other hand, like if you read someone like, like far right people, they, they'll criticize Harrington for being too left wing, which is funny to me, but I understand where that's coming from. So he's like, you know, he's stuck in the middle, really. Like the far left doesn't want him. The liberals really don't want him because, you know, he doesn't really offer anything. And conservatives don't want anything that even suggests like even moderate social reform. Do you think he was effective in addressing the right at times? I'm, I'm just curious because I know he sort of, like I said, he, he tackles um, Milton Friedman's ideas and criticizes them. He had that debate with Buckley. How effective do you think he was in dealing with the right? I think he was, I think as a liberal spoke speaker, he, he's actually okay. I don't think he's putting forward a socialist or Marxist position, but as a liberal speaker, he, he, he holds his own with uh, Buckley. He holds his own with Friedman. But you know, again, as a Marxist or socialist, I don't think he's effective at that well. Before closing out, I, I wanted to talk about the sixth chapter of your book, The Necessary Compromise. And this sort of deals with uh, the civil rights era. So it seems like a pretty important aspect of the book where you get into the um, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and, uh, you know, the, the issues with segregationism and um, labor bureaucracy. Yeah, so just to go back, is Harrington was an, before the chapter, he was an early participant in a lot of the civil rights movement. Um, 
you know, with uh, Max Shackman, with he was allied with people like Bayard Rustin, and he did count Martin Luther King Jr. as a friend. And he, you know, he was an organizer at the March in Washington. But he was a moderate within the civil rights movement, especially as, you know, developed and radicalized. For one thing, in line with his anti-communism, he made sure to enforce like anti-communist clauses in the movements he was a part of to make sure there were no reds or extremists involved, which he considered anathema. So in, in the 60s or 1964, when you have the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, it's not, it's also, it's meant part obviously to create like an unsegregated party in Mississippi, but it is supported by a lot of the figures, uh, you know, of the, his envisioned realignment coalition. There are these civil rights organizers, there are students, some of whom are reading the other America, including when they're in prison for organizing. And that there are figures within the labor bureaucracy like Walter Ruther, the United Auto Workers, et cetera. But what's key is at the convention when, um, they're trying to push you know, like the organizers of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. They're trying to push forward, you know, their party as like truly representative of the people of Mississippi. But the party machine, including Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, are like, we need the South to be with us. And so they're willing, they're trying to offer them, you know, the Mississippi activists just two seats in this convention when they're aghast, they're angered. You know, I forget the name of the organizer, but she's like, we didn't come all this way for two seats. And the Democratic Party, they pull up, like, they basically, they, they, they pull, like, they twist Martin Luther King Jr.'s arm. Bayard Rustin is basically an enforcer for this compromise. And I point out in the book, Harrington is not actually present there, but his, a lot of his comrades are, and they are, you know, they're pushing for the compromise because they want to make sure the South stays in the Democratic coalition and that they can win in 1964. And when Harrington hears all about this, he willingly accepts it. So, and that's part of the price for staying in the, even though this goes against realignment because the, the expediency of the moment, over, you know, which Harrington is almost always willing to give into overrides any long-term concerns even his own reformist strategy gets betrayed. So I don't think Harrington was some kind of like crude racist and segregationist. You know, clearly he, he was an activist against this. But when, it, when the rubber hit the road, he was willing, you know, him, his allies, who he wouldn't break with, are willing to conciliate, to work with these racists, are willing to, you know, betray basically these civil rights activists. And that comes up again and again with him. And it's kind of like, the, it's among the prices you have to pay if you want to stay in the Democratic Party. And he's always willing to pay those prices, even if it goes against even, you know, his, you know, reformist strategy. It, it sounds like a lot of the, the questions that you end up raising about Harrington, um, and I guess by association, maybe some of the DSA strategies today are it sounds like there's this idea of we can reform this bourgeois party from within. Uh, but, you know, the other side of that is, well, how do you know that? Maybe you can't easily reform it and maybe it'll reform you. Um, maybe you'll end up bending a knee towards the party. Yeah. In terms of today, I don't talk about this in the book because it happened after the book went to Prince, but um, DSA has had a little scandal. They're 
one of their members in Congress, Jamal Bowman, some within DSA are very upset because he voted for, you know, funding Israel, the, the Israeli military. And there was a little push to expel him. It ultimately failed, but it's kind of the compromise, even though DSA is officially like supporting boycott divestment sanctions. But the fact is like, they're, and he's not the only DSA elected member who's done this. AOC has also voted to fund the IDF. They endorsed Bernie Sanders, who's done the same thing. So you're right. There is this this uh, it it does realignment doesn't push you to the it doesn't push the Democrats to the left. It pushes the left to the Democrats basically, because unless you're willing to actually threaten them and actually do something you know, you're not going to get anywhere. You're, you know, they can take your support for granted because you've already kind of boxed yourself in. You've already forsook like extra parliamentary action, forming a third party or whatever, you know, you want. You're stuck in there and the Democrats can easily say, well, where are you going to go? And I mean, I, so, and you can kind of see that in how, how the Harringtonite kind of vision informs like the DSA leadership response to this. So like, you know, yeah, it's like we should uh, let our elected officials do what they want. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to tell us we shouldn't endorse Bernie Sanders, even though he, you know, opposes, you know, supports Israel and everything. So there's all like these kind of uh, excuses about compromise, about the necessity of staying in the Democratic Party, because realignment ultimately isn't a real strategy. It's just vote for the Democrats. There really is no 33rd dimensional game of chess. It's It's just kind of like, this made up game, you know, this rationalization just to get out the vote for the Democrats. And, you know, the DSA today, you know, I know there are people certainly within it who disagree, you know, disagree with the, the overall line, but by and large, you know, they're willing to compromise on this. Like, if you're willing to put on paper, you're opposed to Israeli apartheid, but then have elected members materially funding it. There's a disconnect there. And, you know, it's got to be resolved one way or the other. It's interesting because I've never tackled, this is probably uh, the first episode I've done that is like highly, highly critical of the DSA outside of maybe some shows I've done with Barn. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm open to hearing, you know, the, you know, the, the sort of hearing tonight side of it as well. But I, I'm curious, have you had anyone that is, you know, partial to Harrington respond to your book or respond to you? Or, or have you had any interactions with people who maybe disagree with this thesis? Or have you had any debates about this with people is what I'm asking. That's, so I would love for a review of the book from a partisan of Harrington. I think that would actually be a wonderful debate, which has not happened yet. I've had most of what I've heard from, I actually did through a friend of mine who was in DSA at that point, sent out a questionnaire to people in DSA, you know, to share memories, which I didn't include any of them in the book, but most of what I would get in back were just like gushing accounts of him about how great he was. And there's a certain, like, there's a little unearned halo, I think, around him. Like, I remember my high school history book actually talked about him very highly, but I have not actually gotten into many debates with DSA members. The ones I know in DSA are actually very critical of the of the organization. But I would, I certainly, I'm not opposed to it. I would love for it to happen, and I'd I'd, I'd love to read a, 
an intelligent, critical review of my book. That would be wonderful. And I guess this, uh, this, this episode has, has been pretty critical of Harrington. You also said Harrington was no slouch, though. So what, what, what good do you think Harrington did, if any? Uh, like, like beyond the criticisms you make, I think you do think there are maybe admirable things about him in some ways. I don't know. Sure. I think he was, a, by all accounts, he was a, a wonderful husband and father. He was a good teacher. He was a talented translator. Um, one of the, he actually did the first translation for um, Lukács, uh, George Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist, uh, History and Class Consciousness, the opening chapter. He translated that in the 50s. And uh, you can actually, so that was actually very admirable. He, he was incredibly widely read in terms of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky, all these figures. He knew them. But, you know, as you know, Marxists say being determines consciousness. So yeah, he certainly knew it, but like his, um, his position, like the politics he advocated kind of certainly distorted, I think, the meaning of Marxism. But in, another thing I think uh, I didn't, I mentioned this in the appendix of the book, he, he did a, a actually interesting intellectual history of like, basically it's called the politics of, of God's funeral, which is um, basically with the emergence of modernity and kind of the breakup of religion being the driving force in people's lives, what replaces that? And I thought that was actually a very interesting book. I didn't agree with any of the political solutions, but I really enjoyed the actual intellectual history and discussion of that. You know, because he talked about Marxism, you know, Freudianism, all this stuff. And I, I actually think, even as, as critical as I am of all his ideas, he, he's a very talented writer. He makes his ideas very accessible. I just don't think the ideas are very good. So I think that actually, you know, it made it actually not quite that bad to read him because he's actually, you know, a good writer. It's interesting. It sounds like, would it be fair to maybe sum up your view of Harrington with Peter Camigio, you, you quote him in the book as saying, I think Mr. Harrington, who's a Democrat, who votes Democrat, supports the Democratic Party, should call himself what he is, a Democrat. And then he adds, and that means to defend capitalism. I know he doesn't want to do that. I know that in his ideology, he would like to see socialism. Uh, we will never get socialism by supporting capitalism. So it seems like Camigio takes uh, sort of the exact opposite position of Harrington. And it sounds like in some ways, um, he sort of summarizes your views in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think uh, I think I agree with uh, what Peter Camejo said, and that's a it was a very fascinating debate that the two of them had in 1976. So he's basically a Democrat. He he may at some level want socialism, but you're never going to get it that way. Was there anything in that debate that really stood out to you? I don't think I quote it, but where he actually says, "I want to defend American Menshevism," which you know as someone who you know hails from the bolshevik tradition it's, it's always funny to hear someone defend american mentorism but something that did surprise me aside from that little quip is uh where he says that the class struggle at the ballot box where the, the capitalists are on ford's side and the workers are on carter's side that was funny one thing that i was i was actually very surprised that he was just so brazen about how he was like Oh, we support Israel, our organization. We wanted our representatives to vote to fund, you know, Israel in 1973. I was a little surprised at how open he was about that. I thought there might be some kind of hedging about, no, it wasn't. 
In closing, uh, what do you hope my listeners, uh, regardless of whether they're pro-DSA or, or whether they're critical of the DSA, what do you hope they get out of the conversation we've been having? And uh, what do you want them to get out of the book if they happen to pick it up, a failure of vision? Well, I, I hope they get uh, an informed, critical view of their organization's founder, if, you know, if you're in DSA. And I hope that, you know, this is... C- in terms of the book, I hope you get a, a good portrait of who Harrington was as a person and his ideas. And this is, I'm really not into doing a personal attack on Harrington. I try and just focus on like where I think his ideas go wrong. And I think hopefully you get also out of the book like um, a desire to learn more about you know revolutionary currents of Marxism and socialism. And, you know, which I tried to do in the appendix to lay out some of those ideas. Because, uh, and ultimately, I, I really kind of hope people who are not committed to Marxism kind of come out of the book at least wanting to investigate it, if not embracing it. Well, I want to thank you again, Doug Green, for coming on Parallax News. I don't know if there's anything else um, you want to add, uh, but I think it's an interesting book because I, I feel like what you're raising is ultimately the question of um, whether certain politics on the left end up just becoming a form of sheepdog politics, uh, where you're sheepdogging people back into the Democratic Party and not going any further than that. Yeah, I think that's uh, a good way to characterize it. I guess I would also recommend if you want to see more of my writing, I did do a biography of the French communist Louis-Auguste Blanqui called Communist Insurgent. You can buy that from Haymarket Books. And if you want to see my shorter pieces of my writing, you can go to my blog at blancus.blogspot.com. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Doug Green, author of A Failure of Vision, Michael Harrington, and The Limits of Democratic Socialism. Available now from Zero Books. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I hope you're all having a great summer. I've been slowing down production of shows a little bit. I'm going through the back catalog and taking some time off from my heavy recording schedule to enjoy my own summer. I've noticed that releasing one, maybe two episodes a week actually gets more listeners overall. I know the three to four episodes a week could be hard to keep up with, so let me know what you think about the one to two episode schedule, and uh, drop me a line on Twitter at ViewsParallax. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why 
I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.